see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Hello and welcome to a special pre-paid-for episode of FW Presents, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'll be serving as the cat wrangler for this discussion, and joining me are a couple of network all-stars. First up, one of the founders of the Fire and Water Podcast, who also hosts Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, and other shows, it's the Irredeemable Shag. What's up, Shag? Not much. I would like to be called the Irredeemable Uwatu, if that's okay for this episode. Tipping the hand, but sure, we can do that. Uh, next up is my co-host on Batman Nightcast. He also hosts JLU Cast with his wife Cindy and co-hosts Superman Movie Minute and Power Records. Please welcome Chris Franklin. Hey, buddy. Hey, I am a hoax. I am a dream. I am an imaginary story. <laughs> Next up, we've got a pair of guests joining us, but they are certainly not strangers to our network and the greater podcasting community that we're part of. First is the host of the Fortress of Bailytude Network, which includes such shows as From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, and more Superman and Batman podcasts than that, if you can believe it. Please welcome Podcasting Zone, Michael Bailey. What's up? Uh, I would like to uh, say that I'm very impressed with that Shag shaved his head and is wearing very little but a blue cape to uh, emulate the Uwatu. So good good on you, Shag. uh, It's the commitment to the bit that I'm impressed with. Burying myself in the part. And our final challenger, I mean guest, uh, the host of Palace of Glittering Delights and Michael's co-host on the Overlooked Dark Knight, it's Andrew Leyland. Hi, Andy. What's the good? Hello, everybody. I may have existed or I may not. (laughs) uh, I have gathered all all of you here in the arena under the pretense of talking about comics, but really, this is a fight to the death rematch over the best Superman movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, Chris and I just left arbitration. I mean... (laughs) I am still trying to get the blood stains out of the floor of the Firewater offices. Thank you, Ryan. Because we all know it's Blackburn, right? (laughs) (laughs) For anybody who thought Man of Steel just wasn't hardcore enough. (laughs) Oh, miserably. Oh, no, sorry. I'll get in trouble on her. All right. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) In serious, we are gathered to talk about some of our favorite out-of-continuity tales in the form of Elseworlds, imaginary stories, and what-ifs. And this topic was suggested by one of our generous Patreon donors. As you should know, the Fire & Water Patreon has different tiers, and at one of those tiers, patrons can suggest a topic for us to cover on a future episode. This topic, favorite Elseworld stories, was suggested by our good friend Martin Gray. The idea of non-continuity stories goes back nearly as far as the idea of continuity in comic books. During the Silver Age of the 1960s in particular, though, once DC Comics established their multiverse of parallel Earths with similar and unique characters, each having their own histories and continuities, 
then there became more of a concentrated effort to not only tell tales that were not canonical, but to actually brand them as such. This practice continued for years until 1991, when imaginary story was replaced by the term Elseworlds. The first book published with the Elseworlds brand was Batman Holy Terror, but DC retroactively declared that the first official Elseworlds tale was 1989's Gotham by Gaslight, featuring a Victorian-era Dark Knight detective chasing Jack the Ripper. Gotham by Gaslight would have the Elseworlds logo when it was reprinted. Across the street, Marvel Comics, which leaned much heavier on its shared universe history and interconnectivity of titles during the Silver Age, would eventually come up with its own vehicle for out-of-continuity stories in the form of What If. Starting in 1977, the What If series took critical moments in the history of its previously published comics and altered one small or large detail to create a splintered timeline, and the issue would follow those imaginary events. And these are the types of non-canonical stories that we are going to be discussing this hour. We have each brought a selection of Elseworlds, What If, or Otherwise Imaginary Tale. But before we share the stories we brought, I want to know how you guys each first came to these types of stories. Was it a big deal reading these types of comics? Did you avoid them because they didn't count or what? Uh, Michael Bailey, what is your experience or what is your overall thought of these types of stories? Um, my, I guess my first experiences would be with, uh, both Superman from the thirties to the seventies and Batman from the thirties to the seventies, which both had imaginary stories. Uh, the one was a lie because it wasn't originally an imaginary story. They tagged it, uh, that Superman story, uh, in the sixties with the moniker imaginary story, but it just, it, it's weird for me because, as much as a continuity snob as I was for about 20 years, like when I started reading comics, it didn't matter. So it was just like, Oh, this is a story that didn't happen, but it, it's a, it's kind of a fanciful look into like another reality. And I think the next major ones were the amazing story of Superman red, Superman blue from the greatest Superman stories ever told, which I got around the time that I was picking up back issues of the late eighties. What if series? Mm-hmm. So uh, like, like it all came together rather fast, I guess I should say, uh, you know, I always looked at them as just being something outside of the continuity and therefore, you know, they're, they're judged differently. Uh, some of them I like, some of them I don't. DC fell hard into Elseworlds. And I think the only thing I have against Elseworlds stories is how much money I spent in the late 90s. Because uh, <laughs> I think they were releasing three a week. It, it felt like towards the end of the decade, and I was buying most of them. So, uh, And some of them weren't good. So, <laughs> Some? So, yeah, I was about to say. So I, I guess I have this, this, like, I prefer the older stuff uh, because I'm a hipster, essentially. And I think too much is way too much in certain cases. But when done right, uh, a good what if or else worlds or imaginary story can be like a really enjoyable story to read and kind of remind you that these things are supposed to be fun uh, or challenging in a certain way and not getting hung up on, you know, 20 years of continuity. Chris, same questions to you. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure, I think I may have encountered, uh, was it the Superman of 2020 
uh, strip that occasionally ran in Superman. I think that was the name of it. It was mm-hmm. like a Superman's son or something uh, or grandson at that point. But yeah, uh, the one that really got me, though, was Best of DC Digest number 19. It was the all Superman imaginary stories issue. It had Superman red. It had Superman blue. It had the one I'm going to share today. Uh, it it just kind of blew my mind. And after that, I just always thought they were a lot of fun. I mean, I you know, if I if I saw an imaginary story, it kind of you know, it just kind of goosed me and said, Hey, you need to buy this or read it. And, uh, I picked up what if when I could. And, uh, although my favorite, what if was actually the humor issue because that was just freaking hilarious. But, uh, yeah, so I, you know, uh, and then when Elseworlds came along, yes, it just, there was just uh, all those prestige books, just five bucks, five bucks, five bucks, five bucks all the time. And it, uh, somehow I convinced myself I need to buy these. Uh, and, uh, but I enjoyed most of them. Yeah. Some of them aren't that great, but, uh, yeah, overall, I, like Mike said, they're just fun. Uh, you just kind of turn your brain into a different direction and just go with the flow. You can have a lot of fun with them. Andy. Uh, the first one I remember reading is going to come as a massive surprise to you. It was a Spider-Man one. <laughs> uh, I know. Pick yourself off shocks. the floor with your shark at that news. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, obviously the clue is in the name, was weekly. And it may have escaped your notice because I know you're all not particularly detail-orientated, but American Comics are monthly. So there's a bit of a gap, though, in your publishing schedule. So they would pad out the pages by ripping the stories in half and publishing stories from Marvel Team Up as well as Amazing Spider-Man and such. And they once did um, What If Spider-Man's Clone Has Lived. And that is the first What If story I remember reading until I think, was it the Superman ones had backup strips and one of them was Mr. and Mrs. Superman? Yes, that was one of the backup strips, but that was more of an Earth 2 thing. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think I knew the difference when I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know the difference now. <laughs> so the first one I remember reading was what if Spider-Man's clone had lived, which, which went down like gangbusters with the readership. The letters pages were full of um, letters about that story for weeks afterwards. So I don't remember exactly my first exposure to the what if concept. I mean, I guess it didn't seem like a big stretch to me because there had always been on TV shows like what if things had gone differently and whatever. But the, what I do remember from specifically, though, is kids on the school bus, because uh, I came to comics after a lot of my friends, talking about the original what if series as if it was legendary. Um, they would talk you know, in whispered tones. They'd be like, oh, what if Spider-Man had joined the Fantastic Four? Ooh, what if Phoenix had not died? You know, they talk about these issues as if they're amazing. So, and I missed all of it because by the time I got into it, what if was gone. So when the second series of what if started around in 1989, I jumped in with both feet and I love that series. I mean, I have a lot of passion for that second volume of, of uh, what if I'm not claiming that it's good. I'm just claiming that I get a lot of joy from it. Uh, there's in fact, there's a couple of issues. I really, really love that series. And then also about the same time, of course, Elseworld starts. I, I dove in deep on uh, Gotham by Gaslight. I was in my Batman phase, and I was buying all the Elseworlds, all three that came out every week, as Mike suggested, and because most of them were Batman. I mean, th- there was so many that were Batman. It was crazy. And then uh, then once I started becoming sort of a back issue collector, um, the ones, uh, the older ones that sparked my interest were the Super Sons of Superman and Batman. 
I just adore those. Although they, I guess they never called them an imaginary story until the very end of it. But uh, it, it, it clearly were, though, imaginary stories. So that, that's kind of where my joy was. And I'd like to go back to what Chris mentioned about the Superman of 2020. That must have been a pretty depressing backup strip for those kids mm. to read. I mean, Just like geez. the Iron Man of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing a mask. Superman and the Iron Man of 2020. You have to fight the villains over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me uh, let me say that at the beginning of this year, before you know everything went to hell, it's it's like Superman fandom on social media suddenly discovered Superman twenty twenty because it seemed like every day at least five or six people would post some image, you know, because they just found it, and I, I guess they wanted to be first or something. But yeah, I'm. I'm going to be glad when that's over. Actually, I'm going to be glad when all of this is over. And I'm, I'm talking like human history, not just 2020. So. <laughs> I will say at least Hasbro was on the ball because they released an Iron Man 2020 figure this year. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Well, can, I, can I just say when we get to the alternate worlds question, and I want to live in the alternate universe that Shag lives in, where everybody reads comics and talks about it openly on the bus. <laughs> I did not know anyone who read comics. <laughs> when I was a kid, maybe one person. And I certainly didn't know anyone who openly said, have you read what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? That didn't happen in my world. Now, now see, keep in mind, this we had the reverse growing up probably because see, whereas you were on the playground talking about the Daleks and Doctor Who, I had no one to talk to about <laughs> Doctor Who. So I only had comics. You know, the, the, the playground fights that would occur, whether it was Dark Side or Dark Seed, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Bailey loves that story, so I figured I had to tell it. I appreciate that. I just, I just, the, the fact that you let Simon bully you at all just shocks me to this day. <laughs> pressing on, pressing on before we get any further distractions. Each of us has brought one of these types of stories for the group. Uh, it might be a personal favorite, or it might just be one that we find particularly interesting or relates to our interests. Uh, we're each going to do a brief summary and then discuss, and I think we're going to start in chronological order. So, Chris, you're up first. What do you got for us? I have got a story from World's Finest Comics, number 167, June 1967. Uh, it is titled The New Superman and Batman Team. It was written by a very young Carrie Bates and drawn by Kurt Swan and inked by George Klein. And you can hear Rob Kelly yawning, as I say, Kurt Swan and George Klein, uh, and uh, <laughs> by Mort Weisinger. Kal-El is exposed to gold kryptonite on his way to Earth, so Lex Luthor develops a formula that allows him to become Superboy slash Superman. Clark Kent's parents are murdered in a holdup at the general store, and Clark then inherits his rich uncle's fortune and becomes Batman. Superman and Batman team up. Lex's reporter co-worker Lois Lane meets Clark and falls in love, and they marry. Superman finds Supergirl and takes her to live with Lois and Clark because it was the 60s and you weren't allowed to, you know, raise a, a kid on your own as a single parent. And, you know, uh, Batman is blasted by Toy Man's Gold K weapon and begins to die from Gold K fever. Lex realizes Clark was really a Kryptonian and uses his genius to swap his powers and Clark's gold fever, leaving Clark with superpowers and Lex a victim of that fever. To spare his friend, he exiles himself into outer space. Despite this traumatic development, his hair never falls out, so he never becomes evil. Since the Batman stick was taken, Bruce Wayne is apparently using his money to fight crime through social change or something actually productive. <laughs> Can I just say that when I started with my receding hairline, I did not turn evil. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, the jury's still out on that one, Andy. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I was thinking, actually, maybe I should. Maybe that's a viable career goal. <laughs> <laughs> so am I the only one who thinks this should be the next Superman movie that Warner Brothers puts out? <laughs> I would this love been this should be the next Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. It'd make about as much sense. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about, Shag. This story made perfect sense. I would love the bit where the baby gets shot in the face because that's fun and edgy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, why did you pick this one? I, I just always thought, you know, back back in the you know 80s, the idea of Lex Luthor, you know, being a hero. I mean, that was just unheard of, right? I mean, you know, this was even before the Earth Three Lex, before I met him. Uh, so, so, you know, I just thought it was kind of cool. It's like, wow, Lex Luthor, Superman, he's got hair, you know? And I mean, I knew about how, you know, Lex lost his hair and I knew the fact that Lex and Clark were classmates. Cause I saw that episode of the super friends that actually adapted the old comic story at that point. So, um, you know, so I, I just thought it was kind of a neat bit in that, you know, Clark Kent becomes Bruce Wayne. I mean, it just, it literally was, I mean, Carrie Bates was like, I think 19 by this point, this was like his first full script. Uh, for comics after he sold a bunch of uh, cover ideas to Mort Weisinger, like starting at age 13. But this is like fanfic run wild. And it's just, <laughs> it's, it's it's like the earliest version of fanfic, but it's like got printed, you know, and it's just, it's just a whole lot of crazy fun. I love the fact that, you know, uh, Clark, I almost called him Bruce Clark reveals his Batman identity to Lois on their honeymoon. And then Lex shows up, and, you know, takes his clothes off, and, you know, on their honeymoon night. It's like, that's just, okay, I don't know what happened after that. That was, you probably cut that scene out because the comics code wouldn't approve it back then. You know, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lois had a good night. <laughs> she did, yeah. Uh, it's it's just so nuts. I just, I, this is just like the imagination run wild in imaginary, an imaginary story. That's why I love it. This was Brian Azarillo based his entire career off this one story. <laughs> <laughs> what if what if Lex was a good guy? Right. <laughs> actually, actually, that was one of the first things that came in. And this comic was from 1967, right? Right. For the, you guys who know much more about Superman's history, I was just wondering, like, when did it become sort of first established Lex Luthor's more or less jealousy or kind of blaming Superman for kind of knocking him off his pedestal and kind of like you know sucking the the air out of out of his own sails and, and making him less of a big deal because i kind of assumed that was more of just a post-crisis invention but had that ever been established before that 1961 i think okay. that's when the adventure comics story came out if i'm remembering the year correctly uh and it wasn't so much that that he was jealous that that superman was sucking the 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 air out of the room, as you said, it was more that when Lex went bald, he blamed Superboy for it. But then the entire town turned on him. It's actually a really tragic story. The Super Friends episode is good, but it doesn't really do justice to what terrible people the citizens of Smallville were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to, to Lex Luthor uh, specifically. So it's like every time he tried to make good, it failed and everyone openly mocked him. Uh, so it was more of as it got into the seventies and you had, uh, Elliot S. Magan in particular, but Carrie Bates, uh, had a particular fondness for Lex as well, kind of made him this genius and the dynamic became, he was evil and hated Superman, 
but Superman blamed himself for Lex being who he is. So it's it, it, it's it's basically take the dynamic from the TV show Smallville, where everything is Clark's fault, and just port it over to that. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, I'll I'll chime in on on behalf of the Rob Kelly and uh, who's who contingent. Um, I got to say the art in this is really nice. Uh, I was very pleased with the art. I thought Kurt Swan did a really nice job. There's a lot of dynamic panels when Batman's punching out people and stuff. I mean, you really see the swing. I was pleased with that. Mm-hmm. The story was rough for me. This is not my favorite kind of era of storytelling, but I will say they picked up once the Brainiac scene started and Superman and Batman had to team up. Once they teamed up, I felt like, okay, the story's finally moving and things are happening. And I kind of liked the, the angle of Lex getting jealous. I like that. I liked the story. I thought the story, for all the reasons Chris has just said that it's utterly batshit insane. <laughs> I loved the story for those reasons. I thought it was really good. It was only on every other page they feel the need to remind you that this is an imaginary story. It's like what was the attention span of kids back in 1967? Because this, if you compare this to what Marvel was publishing in 1967, this is clearly for the under ten set. So you can see why why Marvel were, were gaining the traction they were. Yeah, and, and the Superman books tended to skew a little younger, it uh, seemed like, than even some of the other DC books. Like the Mort Weisinger books seemed to skew younger than the Julia Schwartz books mm. at the time. I too, mean, yeah. all that being said, Lex Luthor does Peter Parker's gig of taking photos of himself to sell them to a major metropolitan newspaper. <laughs> I, I had to check the date on that. When I saw that, I'm like, wait a minute, which game? For- okay, Spider-Man came first. Never mind. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I, I genuinely thought this was a 50 story when I read it. <laughs> All right. Good pick, Chris. Let us move on to Andy. What is your What is your selection that you brought? My pick was, and I'm sure this will come as a massive surprise to the listeners, uh, what if Spider-Man had rescued Gwen Stacy from What If Issue 24? Or alternatively, What If Gwen Stacy Had Lived, which is the actual title in the story? I can only assume they decided to change that because they wanted the words Spider-Man in the title of the story on the cover. It was written by Tony Isabella with art by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. And the story is basically Spider-Man saves Gwen Stacy from her certain doom which is the whole point of what-if stories, but then everything goes to shit. And J. Jonah Jameson exposes Peter as Spider-Man on his wedding day to Gwen, and he ends up fleeing like a latter-day fugitive and or David Banner, pick your particular poison. The end. (laughs) That's a fair summation. I mean, that's you're accurate. Yep. (laughs) That's that's what happens. You left out the part where they spends the first third of the comic just telling you what actually happened I before just, they start telling you the changes. I was literally just going to say that. I said the the first the problem with this issue is uh, that the first third of it is just entirely recapping what happened in our universe or the Marvel universe, and that's such a waste because there is so much more that can be done with this story because it is really really good. I love the bit in the middle where Gwen and Peter act like, you know, mature adults and have a conversation about the fact that actually, no, I didn't kill your dad. I mean, we should have done this years ago, but Stan didn't want to. And I love all the, all the bit with Harry and Norman and Norman actually getting through to Harry and all that's great. And I love the actual wedding and the art is spectacular. 
And then it ends on that massive cliffhanger that has never been followed up on, which is a real shame. The thing with What If is it was really nihilistic. Everybody died at the end of the What If story, <laughs> as a rule. And this is the only one that leaves itself open-ended in such a way for a sequel. And I've said to Michael before, if I was doing One More Day back in 2000 or whenever One More Day happened, 2005, whatever, this is how I would have had Mephisto's deal go. I would have had Gwen, uh, Gwen, I would have had Murray Jane or Peter or whatever say to him, look, his greatest failure is the death of Gwen. You can have the marriage if you give us that. And he does. But because he's Mephisto, the Prince of Lies, this story then happens. So, yeah, he saves Gwen, but everything else goes to shit. And I would have loved to have read Amazing Spider-Man that followed up on this story. I'm still waiting for a sequel to this. Well, they had to wrap it up so quickly so they could fit in this ridiculous Eternals backup story that no one cared about. God, yeah, what's all that about? Oh, those ran for a couple of issues of what yeah, if, yeah. This is Marvel in the 70s, right? Is mm-hmm. this, yeah. Yeah, oh, so yeah. they were just sticking material anywhere they could uh, at that point, it sounded like. Uh, if, if you read Sean Howe's book, it's surprising that Marvel comics were actually published in the 70s, yeah. given all the stuff <laughs> happening behind the scenes. My big takeaway from this uh, issue is, God, the art is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a mark for like late sixties, seventies era Spider-Man. Uh, and this fits right into that. And it, it's funny that Shag mentioned the fact that it takes so much time to tell you what happened in our world. Cause I literally messaged Andy that while I was reading it, it's just like, <laughs> I was just like, Oh my God. Uh, the, the funny thing is, is that basically this story, I think, ultimately proves why Stan had everything go the way it did, because you kill the entire previous premise of Spider-Man by doing this. You give him a new premise, but it's just like if you have, you know, uh, Norman not have sex with Gwen and that, 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 I'm so what? Yeah, exactly. Um, if you have Norman, you know, regain his sanity and 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 reconcile with his son, and Peter and Gwen talk like adults, and you know, finally getting married and all that, you've you've basically killed the strip as it existed. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to see it on that level. I think that what I want to know is, did the creators of uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home read this story? Uh, because the whole idea of the villain mailing Spider-Man's secret identity into Jameson. <laughs> oh, I yeah. Mean, you know, yeah. that's the first thing. I've see, read this before, but I haven't read it since I saw Far From Home. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that, hmm, I wonder if somebody somebody read this. Uh, because uh, I read this in the uh, Gil Kane Visionaries uh, trade paperback. Uh, and yeah, I agree that I think my favorite thing about this is the fact that that everyone they're in character, but everybody actually acts like Andy said, like real people. They make like they actually talk and discuss. And and uh, I love the fact that uh, Robbie's basically like, I'm going to ruin you, uh, Jonah, and we're going to get Peter off the hook at the end. That's great. I'd love mm-hmm. to see how that worked out. But uh, yeah, this is this is one of the I, I mean, this is a, a humdinger of a what if I my what if reading is somewhat sporadic. I enjoyed it when I could find it. But. If there's more like this that I haven't read, I really need to track them down because I really enjoyed the hell out of reading this again. Have you read What If Uncle Ben Had Lived? I have that one. I bought that one off the stands. That's one of the few I bought. And I actually, 
Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, that's a fantastic. Yeah. I don't one. think any of the Spider-Man ones were awful in this initial run of what if the Roy Thomas ones were incredibly overwritten. And like I that's said, a shot. What the hell you say? But an awful lot of them as well were deliberately everything had to die at the end. And the ones yeah. that didn't do that tended to be the better ones. Well, I read an article about how uh, originally, and I don't know who it was, someone came to them and said, okay, look, enough with the death at the end. Of, you know, the universe goes all absolute crap in every issue. You've got to have these a little bit more brighter ending. And I don't know where that occurred. 70s. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I just want to say, I, just, I, I did enjoy this issue. I, I think it was absolutely phenomenal. So much joy in this thing. I mean, it just really made me happy reading it. And I love the part where Gwen and Peter go to tell Aunt May uh, about the wedding and everything. And, and Aunt May's just waiting for them to shut up because it's all like, you don't even hear them talking. You see her word balloons like, oh, I know what's going on here. We've got a wedding to plan. It's just, I love that. Yeah. Aunt May was in, on board with that. I see my only real problem with it is how compressed the story is in comparison to today. It looks like basically he rescues her and they go straight over to May and say, let's get <laughs> married and they do it the next day. <laughs> And again, that goes down to the fact that he spent a quarter of the issue recapping. And Tony Isabella's a really weird choice. He's not somebody you'd think you would put on Spider-Man. He doesn't really have a lot of experience writing Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I've mentioned to Andy that 70s and early 80s Spider-Man is more of a blank spot for me. But the more of it I see, I think Gil Kane is working his way into like my top five favorite Spider-Man artists. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really dig him. I like some of the energy. I like the way he does Green Goblin in this story. And if there was like an MVP of this story who I really love, it's Robbie at the very end. Like Robbie is mm-hmm. who's able to actually like confront Jonah and, and be the one person to like who Gwen can go to cry on uh, when everything has gone nuts. So I just that that really endeared Robbie to me. So, all right, next up, Michael, the man who has two Superman podcasts and two Batman podcasts. Are you going to surprise us with your selection? Uh, yeah, it's a Marvel book, uh, <laughs> shockingly. Um, what if volume two, number five, what if the vision had destroyed the Avengers? Uh, plus, what if Wonder Man hadn't died? It's the same story. I don't know why they're saying plus. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's basically, I know they try to split it up in the middle, but it's all one big story. And basically it's like this. When Wonder Man originally joined the Avengers, he was a traitor because he read a lot of Legion comics. So (laughs) at the very last minute, he turns on the Masters of Evil and basically gives his life. And Hank Pym uses his brain patterns and eventually that gets put into the Vision. And there's this whole thing with the Vision and Scarlet Witch and they get married. And then Wonder Man comes back and he has a really tacky brown jacket. And eventually he gets a mullet. I don't care. It was a tacky brown jacket, Chag. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that it was your fashion sense, you know, now. So anyways, this story is, what if he didn't die? What if Giant Man had given him a cure? And basically, it's the story of how Wonder Man becomes the most amazing of, a member of the Avengers. Uh, he's loved by everybody but Quicksilver. Scarlet Witch is thirsty for him. But Quicksilver's <laughs> all like, no, you can't do that because I'm your brother. And it's, you know, we're not quite to lobe creepy, but we're almost there. So she says, okay, I won't be thirsty for him, but she's secretly still thirsty for him. Uh, Eventually she votes for him to become the leader and 
Quicksilver gets all mad and leaves. And then Hank Pym creates Ultron, who puts his mind in the body of the Vision. And the Vision goes crazy and tries to kill the Avengers. And the original Avengers come back. And there's this really cool moment. Not as cool as, you know, a bunch of portals opening up. But, you know, when I was 13, this was pretty badass. So uh, Wonder Man eventually ends up giving his life and they put his brain uh, patterns into the vision and everything kind of sorts itself out. Uh, the end. And any anybody familiar with us knows how much you love Wonder Man. So <laughs> it, sh- it shouldn't be surprising. But, but why did you pick this one? Because I love this er- the early issues of the second volume of What If. I went in the summer of 1989 in addition to buying Batman, because uh, I was uh, in, in the middle of one of my Batman, I wouldn't say phase in the same sense that Andy, I mean, uh, Shag says it, but I was super into Batman that summer, but I was also buying whatever cheap back issues I could find. And what ifs were really inexpensive, but they looked kind of cool. So I picked up, I think the first one I picked up was the what if Peter hadn't gotten rid of the symbiote suit. And I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know about a black costume or, you know, or the, the fact that there was this character named Venom. I, you know, I wasn't that plugged in yet, but I really liked how it went. So I just started buying more and more. And for whatever reason, this one just always appealed to me. I think because, yes, it does the what if thing of spending way too much time telling you the original history. But I think Valentino does a really good job of like going through Avengers history in footnotes, but basically showing how it would have been different if Wonder Man had lived. And when I was reading this for for us to talk about, it really solidified that for the most part, and there's always exceptions, the difference between a what if and an Elseworlds is that a what if will take a specific moment in time change what happened and go forward. Whereas Elseworlds are more big, high concept. Like what if Batman became a Green Lantern, which changes everything? Mm -hmm. What if Superman lands in Russia? What if Batman fights Jack the Ripper in 1889 Gotham? So it's like, what ifs are always more tied into continuity and therefore a little more nerdy. But I think really what what sell, sold me and made me go, no, this is the one I'm going to talk about, is when Cap, Iron Man, and Thor show up at the end. It's this total boss moment. And Valentino undercuts that right at the bottom of the page where Vision goes, excellent. Like he's Mr. Burns or something. It's just like, <laughs> like, like you can see like this moment playing out on screen where the, 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 the Trinity of, of Marvel shows up to lay the smack down. And it's exactly what the villain wanted. Uh, and, and I kind of liked the dynamic between Wonder Man and Scarlet Witch in the story. Uh, Quicksilver was a little creepy. But, yeah, <laughs> which is but, so out of character for Quicksilver. If you, but I actually, <laughs> funnily, funnily enough that you mention it, I actually collected the Wonder Man series for a little while when it was going on. I don't really want to talk about it now for reasons, but I, when I went back a couple of years ago and read reread Burns' Avengers West Coast run, I really liked the way they played one, like the way he handled Wonder Man. Uh, and gave him a mullet because that guy's what Wonder Man had in 1989. That was a mullet. <laughs> yeah, I recognize it. it. Looked just like Superman's. 
I hate you in ways modern science is incapable of measuring. That's fair. But no, I just, this was just a really fun story that kind of takes you through the history of Silver Age Avengers. 13-year-old me loved that. The 39-year-old me loves this. Yeah, I want to thank you for bringing this because I had never read this story. And and I just, on my own, I've been doing a reread of the Avengers from like around the air, like the Roy Thomas, John Buscema era, starting with Vision's first appearance. Um, so this was like a, a real sweet spot. And, and I love this. Um, I, I, I too, I have always liked Wonder Man's original costume. The leisure jacket is okay. The, the West coast Avengers one where he just had kind of like the black sleeveless one with the, with the red W is okay. For some reason, I really like the green Christmas tree looking outfit with the, the helmet and the goggles. Um, I, the way everything seems to work out, and like, hey, like the first half of this is everything is going kind of per- perfectly for him. I was like, this, like, in another generation, like if Jim Valentino had created the character, they would call this guy a Mary Sue or Gary Stewart, something like that. Like, it's weird, but of course, the flip for for the way he ends up sacrificing himself and and being reborn with his memories going into ultra and or into vision uh to basically as you said kind of everything sort of resets to the way we know it anyway um yeah no i just yeah i got a kick out of this one i, I really like this story yeah you know, mike brought up a great point and uh one of the things i loved about what if was you know back then you didn't have trade paperbacks you didn't have marvel unlimited so what if was a great way to learn marvel history you learned so much about the Marvel universe from the what ifs. And so uh, that, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm also a huge Wonder Man fan. And personally, uh, I do think the black costume with the red W and the mullet is the best costume. Uh, I absolutely love that era. And I enjoyed that uh, ongoing series as well, Mike. And I understand everything else you're saying about that. Uh, why not to revisit it? But uh, this was so much fun. I mentioned earlier, what if volume two brings me so much freaking joy? And this issue is a great example of it. It's just fun. There's a lot of big action, crazy stuff going on. And it's super, super, super fun. So it uh, brings me a lot of joy. And I, I, I like, for example, my favorite one of this era, Mike, I, I'll just mention it, throw it out there, is what if Wolverine led Alpha Flight? Um, it just hits me in all the right spots. It's, uh, again, super fun run of what if comics. Yeah, these were a lot of fun. I I enjoyed picking these up. I I picked up most of them um, off the stands and and Jim Valentino was involved in quite a few of them. And I was reading Guardians of the Galaxy at the time. And this is nothing against Valentino because he brings a really nice energy uh, to the art. But I always kind of felt like there was just something slightly amateurish about his art that gave me hope that, oh, I can work in comics. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was just there was just something about it. I mean, that I know that sounds like a slam, but I don't really mean it that way. It was like as a teenager, I was into his stuff because I'm like, he kind of draws the way I do, you know, like now in a way. I mean, he was way better than I was, but there was something there was that wall kind of unpolished bit about it. Now there's some things in here that's kind of Liefeld-esque, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's, there's some image stuff. Of course he's one of the image founders. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really dug what he was doing at Marvel in the uh, late eighties, early nineties with this and guardians and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. And, and that, uh, now I don't think he was involved in that one, but that, uh, that venom one, the, what if the, you know, the Spider-Man hadn't got rid of the symbiote. Oh yeah. That's gets on the Hulk and Thor and oh yeah, it's awesome. I really enjoyed this as well. Like the art's fantastic. The Jim Valentino art is really good. Quicksilver dies. You didn't see that coming. Uh, it's all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. Uh, 
and it's it kind of is like a traditional what if and there's a little bit of the the darkness to it like when scarlet witch just loses her shit and blows magneto up <laughs> which i for one applauded at i thought that was great and the vision just being the cackling mustache twirling villain but this was really fun i really genuinely enjoyed this like like chris's pick I probably wouldn't have read this if you two hadn't said we're doing this for this show. I think I was more surprised that I liked this one than Chris's one because I'm partial to Superman and Batman and I don't really give a shit about the Avengers, to be honest. I'm not a team book guy. Uh, I don't know what that says about me psychologically. I liked the Fantastic Four and the Teen Titans and Alpha Flight and that's it. And all of those can basically be described as not really teams and family rather than a team of people. But this one was really good. I really genuinely enjoyed this. I'm wondering if Valentino brought to Marvel an indie flavor that a lot of the other artists didn't have at the time. Because Marvel in the mid-80s had a very homogenized look to it. I mean, there were some standouts, but really when you looked at Marvel on the stands, there was kind of a sameness to it that gave you comfort. He was and, Al Milgram. I think everything was kind of yeah. touched by Al Milgram. But with with Chris talking about the art, it, it kind of twigged in my mind that maybe he was kind of bringing that indie flair, like that 80s indie flair, that mid-80s black and white type era, where you're right. It Like, like if you're reading Hero Alliance, for example, from... Um, whatever company i for innovation as we say innovation yeah uh the artist on that was bart sears at one point and some other people but they weren't quite ready for prime time this is one step above that it's ready for prime time but it still retains that kind of indie flavor to it Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering if that's another thing that i was responding to and what people responded to in the image artists in the late 80s and early 90s in general was it that that lack of the patina of professionalism where it's so raw that you feel like you're on the ground floor of something yeah that's good because i know valentino came from what like normal man or something Mm -hmm. like that yeah so i I think you're right i think that that's a better way to say it so i don't sound insulting to jim valentino and i don't mean to insult to jim Jim valentino but yeah there's that that uh, that indie that indie energy, that 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 not Joe Senate polish, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that Marvel had, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, because if you look at the Vision's cape, for example, it's very there's a lot of capage there. I guess mm-hmm. is the best way. It's kind of what McFarlane would do with Batman's cape, almost. Mm-hmm. Not to bring up bad memories for two people on this call, uh, <laughs> but. But when you, when I looked at the vision, I was just like, man, that's the most that's one of the most awesome versions of the vision outside of John Buscema I've ever seen. And in a weird way, it reminded me of how much I loved the vision in Age of Ultron, because like they did things with his costume and that that made it look great. So I'm going to stop now because I'll just keep going on and on about how much I love this issue. <laughs> but yeah, I just. When you said that, Chris, it was just like, yeah, wow. Maybe that was always in the back of everybody's mind, basically. All right, moving on. Um, My pick, we're going to the year 1994, which was the year that DC turned a whole bunch, if not all, of their annuals into Elseworlds tales. Uh, Mine is from Shadow of the Bat, annual number two. The story is The Tyrant. The story opens with Batman watching the people of Gotham City take to the streets, 
rioting, destroying the police station, the news broadcast center, and marching on Wayne Manor with torches. Flashback to learn that in this world, right after Thomas and Martha Wayne were murdered, their killer was caught by a pedestrian who happened to be Professor Jonathan Crane. From there, Bruce Wayne grows up much the same to become Batman, except the dominant influence on his life is the man who would be Scarecrow. So the way Batman uses fear as a weapon is much more pervasive, much more insidious and systematic. He uses his wealth and his resources to revamp the police force into a much more militant, fascistic club of stormtroopers. He uses subliminal suggestions in the media to keep the populace more docile. Criminals are treated and experimented on with Crane's psychotropic drugs. Their big plan, however, is Bruce and Crane are going to treat Gotham's water supply with drugs that will root out their criminal instincts by effectively taking away people's free will. This plan is discovered by Anarchy, who was a big deal at the time, who leads Batman's rogues gallery in their last-ditch suicide mission to stop the corrupt Batman from poisoning the city. I I read this issue when it first came out. I was sort of dipping in and out of Batman titles by 94, but I liked the graphic novels, the the sort of one-offs that were kind of coming out, and I knew that this one was an Elseworlds one-shot. I liked the cover a lot. Um, I was instantly drawn really by how possible this alternate universe felt. Um, It was not some massive supernatural or magic alteration that changed Batman. It wasn't setting him a hundred years in the past or the future. It was just the influence of one bad actor at just the right time to make this world and this character terrifying in a way that you wouldn't want. Um, Someone with Batman's drive, with Bruce Wayne's resources, but the moral compass of the freaking Scarecrow whispering in his ear from when he was a child. And you just see how easy it would be for Gotham to become this hellish police state that doesn't even realize they've become brainwashed. So, And boy, does it feel relevant today, which is kind of the reason why I think this. I've always liked it, but when I thought about it, I was like, "Mm, this is something I could talk about. So. It's it's very much Alan Grant playing with that idea that people say Batman's not that far removed from Judge Dredd. Mm. So it's basically Alan Grant here going, okay, I'll show you what a Batman who is a fascist looks like. And uh, it was really good. The art's very, very black. There's a lot of black inks and and heavy, heavy lines in this. My main takeaway from this, though, is Gotham City is apparently a massive metropolitan urban sprawl that only has one road in or out. this story felt very british to me careful what you go next no no we've been been boiled and tasted bland interesting no no, what i mean is is there is a for lack of a better term a lack of a give a crap that british stories and british writers have when dealing with fascistic governments that Americans don't. Americans tend to have, like, if we're going to use Batman as an example, if you're going to have fascist Batman in America, it's going to be Dark Knight Returns, where he's the one man that can clean up this city. Whereas this story is, yes, he was the one man to clean up his this city, and it all went horribly wrong. And it turned into a, you know, a a tyranny, like, really quick. Like, I I have read very little 
2000 AD and Judge Dredd stories, but this felt more Judge Dredd, as you mentioned, than it does Batman. Uh, and and the, the only thing that really anchors it to kind of American Batman is the fact that Grant uses Anarchy, who was his pet character at the time. So it was just like he, he managed to work the character in, but I'll give him this. It worked out perfectly. So this, this felt, this, this is like Batman and V for Vendetta went off for the weekend. And (laughs) this was the result nine months later. (laughs) I think to be generally serious, just for a moment, I think it's because you guys essentially are brought up to trust your government and big business and they always have your best interests at heart. And we're brought up to have a large distrust of the same thing. Even watching something like The Six Million Dollar Man as a kid, it was always a bit eye-rolling that the government were benevolent and always had your best interests at heart. Whereas we were always like, don't trust the people in charge. And I think that comes through an awful lot in Alan Grant's writing, that he has no trust whatsoever in the government of any stripe at all. I think Anarchy may be Alan Grant's most personal creation. Yeah, he definitely, and I agree that, yeah, he was definitely, like Mike said, his pet character. And I'll be honest, at the time, I got a little tired of him. Uh, he was kind of, he was kind of what, uh, you know, to, to Alan Grant, what Mantis is to Steve Englehart, you know, it's like, right. okay, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, we enough, you know, but, but no, but Vermin is to J.M. DeMatteis. Yeah. A little, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And, uh, but the, it, he, he's a perfect uh, character for this story, obviously. Uh, makes a whole lot of sense. I, I enjoyed this. Uh, you know, I remembered reading it at the time, actually all of the, I enjoyed all of the Batman Elseworlds annuals. I was particularly the, the pirate one in detective mm-hmm. with Chuck Dixon and Alcatana. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it, yeah, this, this one, uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's you know you can see some relevance, uh, to, <laughs> to things going on today. I did the, the art was a little, um, where it switched back and forth between Tom Rainey and Joe Staten. It was uh, uh, Joe Staten was definitely not, was trying to not be Joe Staten uh, in this comic, uh, mm-hmm. trying to kind of match what Tom Rainey, I guess had started. I don't know if this was one of those cases where Tom Rainey was given the assignment and he just turned in a handful of pages and Joe Staten filled in the rest. I don't know. It just seems weird the way it switches back and forth. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, for, for the most part, it's, uh, it looks good. Uh, there's a weird page where Batman gets swirly Bill Sienkiewicz, uh, shoulder, uh, protrusions. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I liked it. It was, uh, it, it's, it's very Alan Grant. Uh, <laughs> it's very much Alan Grant. <laughs> and the thing is as well with this, we can never see the reveal. It's Vicky Vale ever again, can we? Vicky Vale, Vicky Vale, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this year of annuals, uh, the the Elseworlds were a bit much because, like, it seemed like all the other Elseworlds leading up to that point had been very carefully crafted and designed, as you guys said, with like a big picture idea. So you get to this uh, year, and it just seemed like it was like okay, everyone's just cranking them out. So some of the manual annuals were very much a miss, some were a, a win. This is one of the better ones. Uh, this was actually very, very good, and I think this was the best uh, version of Anakin being corrupted and going to the dark side that uh, that I've ever come across. <laughs> because I would have taken this over uh, the prequels any day. But um, I, I I think it's a valid interpretation though, because you know we always think of Bruce Wayne is driven and all that stuff because he lost his parents. Well, here he gets a substitute father so he's got a different set of daddy issues and and as he goes through this 
And I mean, Jeff Johns would have had a playground with it following this thing up, but it's, uh, I think it works. And I kind of like the way Crane is manipulating the whole thing. It's, I mean, it's terrifying as you guys said, how, how it could have happened. And did anyone else notice that Batman's wearing as bats pants like three years before this, that was a thing? So kind of, I was like, Oh, this is after. Is it, I thought this was 92. You said no, this was 94, 94. Oh, okay. right after. Yeah. 90, 94 was the summer of Elseworlds and zero hour. Uh, okay my my i apologize well glad then that makes more sense but no i think this was a fun one and um it's interesting i think it's uh you can kind of see a little bit of all of us in the picks we chose you know chris chose a very classic all-american batman and superman team up and uh andy picked a a classic spider-man pick and ryan picked one uh where it's you know he's he's raging against uh injustice and uh fascism and mike picked one which was at its core was a story about a uh not necessarily a husband and wife but about the core there was a lot of it was about a man and a wife and that plays in your podcasting and mine's gonna end up being about jli so i just think it's a in addition (laughs) all picking something different we all sort of went into our wheelhouse I, I do want to throw out there really quick that if you are going to look for the better Elseworlds annuals of, of that summer, pick up the Adventures of Superman and Superboy 1, which was a two-part story that was actually really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of did the dystopian future, but not as nihilistic as some of the other ones. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that as well because th- there was th- I, I agree with Shag. There were some that, whew, Superman is Tarzan. No interest there. <laughs> I, I would say if you want to find some of the better Elseworlds annuals from that year, uh, look for the ones that say Armageddon two thousand one across the top because those, <laughs> those were better. <laughs> All right, Shag, you set us up. What is your final selection for this evening? I picked uh, one called Justice Riders, and this was published, uh, it was cover dated 1997, it was published December 26th, 1996, so right in time for Christmas, $5.95. You're not kidding, these things were damn expensive, guys. So it was written by Chuck Dixon with art by J.H. Williams, uh, very early in his career, I believe, at least uh, mainstream, inked by Mick Gray. And a colorist was Lee Luride, I think is how you say his name, editors Ruben Diaz, and the cover is by John Van Fleet. And, and the premise here is the story is set in the Wild West, and it features Elseworlds versions of several Justice League International characters, each of them with, uh, within their own Western stereotype. And the story premise is basically Diana Prince is the sheriff of a small town called Paradise. And when the town is destroyed under a series of mysterious circumstances, she goes after the man responsible, a railroad tycoon named Maxwell Lord. And along the way, she assembles a league of justice riders to help her on her quest. So uh, here's sort of a rundown of the care. And that's the recap you're getting, folks. So uh, here's the recap of the, of the characters, though, and how they fit with Western stereotypes. So you got Diana Prince. She's our lead. And she's playing the sheriff who always brings uh, the bad guy to justice. You got Oberon, uh, who's, who's a minor character, but he's worth mentioning because of the Justice League International connection. He plays the deputy, but he's also like that uh, older, odder goofball, like, you know, in Back to the Future 3, when they're in the bar, it has all the famous actors who played sidekicks in the Western movies. He's like one of them. Then you get uh, Wally West. He's the fastest gun in the West, sort of the Billy the Kid type of character. You got Hawkman playing the Native American tracker and shaman. You got Martian Manhunter. He's playing the mysterious loner. Then you have Guy Gardner, who's playing like the bounty hunter type and also the uh, pulp novel celebrity. 
And you get Booster Gold, who's playing the Maverick Gambler and Ladies Man, and Blue Beetle, who's placing, playing the uh, crazy steampunk inventor. And your villains uh, are Felix Faust. He's sort of the uh, dastardly foe who's tapped into the dark mystical arts. And then you have Maxwell Lord. I mentioned he's the greedy railroad tycoon. He'll stop at nothing to build his railroad across America, including driving an enormous train engine that he calls Lord Havoc. So... um. For me, I picked this one um, because of the Justice League International connection. I thought it'd be fun. Uh, and I remembered liking it. I hadn't reread it in years. And as I reread it, I mean, this is really a very enjoyable story. I like the way it sort of develops. I like the way the team is assembled. I like each one of the characters. I actually feel connection to like Wonder Woman and what she's going through in this. She's She's not superhuman. She's just... Uh, a woman who's driven. She does use a lasso at one point and says that the guy will tell her the truth, but it, she doesn't have any powers. In fact, now I think about it, um, I guess Wally West had the speed. Hawkman could fly, but not much else. Martian Manhunter had some maybe mysterious powers, but other than that, everyone was just normal humans, really. And um, I found this to be a lot of fun. I've got more to say in it, but I want to hear what you guys thought. I really enjoyed this. I had read it. Um, I didn't buy it. I, when I worked at the comic shop in college, this came out and I read it there and I didn't buy it. And I was like, man, why didn't I buy this? Uh, <laughs> cause, uh, it's gorgeous. And I, I love what Chuck Dixon was doing, uh, on the Batman titles at the time. And, uh, yeah, this is just a whole lot of fun. And it just, uh, it really makes me want to get to the JLU episodes where they they go back in time to the Wild West. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just, I love those too. Uh, and there's a, there's a little similarity with Wonder Woman, I think. Uh, it, yeah, it's uh, I, I just love the way that they mix in the Justice League with the Old West, and of course Chuck Dixon's got a handle on the Old West, and it's it's just I mean I I could see this just I could see this being a series, I, I and I would read the hell out of it. Yeah. My favorite part of it was that it wasn't Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and the Old West. He put together a really interesting team, uh, you know, and having it be Wally West, who was obviously the Flash at the time, so that's the one they're going to use. But sprinkling in that he ended up he killed Barry Allen, that kind of yeah. threw me. That that was a that was like like he sprinkled in like so much that you would want to like Chris said you want to read more of this, but having like. Native American Hawkman and Wally West as the Billy the Kid character and, you know, Wonder Woman as the sheriff and and Martian Manhunter showing up out of nowhere, but also having the blue and the gold. Mm-hmm. That was like awesome. He, he took all these great and Guy Gardner as a Pinkerton. Basically, that was great. Which, I loved him as a Pinkerton. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was my one thing. Was when I was reading it, I was like, "Why isn't there any aspect of green in his costume?" And then I had to reset my mind to the time. I was like, "Oh, this was after he became Warrior. He wasn't yeah. Guy Gardner, Green Lantern at this time." But just making him a Pinkerton was really, really great. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. And I love that Blue Beetle or Ted Cord had the vehicle. That was like his signature mm-hmm. contribution. Was mm-hmm. <laughs> the little bug vehicle. But working in Lord Havoc, like that was genius in the way he did that. Yes. With Max at the end. I mean, it's just like, like, this is one of those stories that started out like, oh, this is kind of cute to, oh my God, this is awesome. Now it's interesting, you know, Max being evil that, I mean, other, other than his earliest appearances, that really hadn't become a thing yet. So this was a little ahead of its time in that, uh, but it also made sense with the railroad tycoon aspect of it. Now you, you mentioned there was no Batman. I really liked that. And I thought a lot about that. Cause like, well, wait a minute, this is, you mentioned it's kind of a weird group of characters. Actually it's, it's not, it really does fit with the JLI and the later years of JLI when Wonder Woman was the leader, you know, cause by this point, you know, Graham Morrison's books on the shelf. So the, the older, 
all the Justice League International stuff's over. But at one point, you know, Wonder Woman was on the team and it had Hawkman and it had um, Martian Manhunter and it had Guy Gardner and Blue Beetle and Booster and a different variations of it. So it, it's not that outlandish of a thing of the JLI being put together, but Batman was part of the JLI for so many years. Why not use him? And I figure it's probably because they just felt like, okay, Batman's got so many else worlds already. And we, it's 1999. We can't put Batman in a book without him being, you know, sucking up all the oxygen in the room. You know, if we put Batman in the Batman in this book, he's going to, we have to have him upstage Diana. And that's the only reason I can think that they didn't put him in here. I think it was like an inter-office dare. Somebody was like, hey, Chuck Dixon, write a story without Batman. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the he was the best Bat writer of the late 90s. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hands yeah. Down. I just want to point out that Wally West being, you know, being Kid Flash and being a fast gunfighter, I couldn't help but think of uh, the Waco kid, Gene Wilder in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> <laughs> No, Wonder Woman, what you have to understand is that they're people of the land. <laughs> you know, morons. morons. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the art because not only is there just beautiful art in it, he took the time to do these cool borders all around it. Some of them look like Native American symbols. Some of them just look like, you know, uh, uh, various Western stuff. But then you'll have different iconography. Like there'll be a page where it shows all of their symbols. It'll have Wonder Woman's star and Hawkman's bird and Flash's lightning bolt and Blue Beetle's, uh, you know, scarab and et cetera, et cetera. And it just, it looks really, really sharp. Um, I will say, uh, you know, I've read a lot of Wonder Woman comics over the years and, uh, wow. J.H. Williams can really draw a gorgeous and sexy, uh, Wonder Woman. And, uh, yeah, it really works for me. The, the, the panel design, the backgrounds and the borders. If I didn't see the credits, I would have seen those and been like, that's J.H. Williams's work. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the arts, the arts, brilliant. The arts, I mean, it's Chuck Dixon doing a Western, so there's nothing to not like there, but the art is spectacular in lots of different ways. Just the panel layout, the panel progression and the storytelling. J.H. Williams is brilliant. I mean, the, the thing feels like I've never seen an episode of the Wild Wild West, but it feels like this is an episode of the Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. It's better than the movie. Yeah. It could not be worse than the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was no sp- giant spider in the third act of this, just a giant robot. Gotta have a giant spider, Mike. Gotta have a giant spider. <laughs> Might be have leaning a, a little bit close to Briscoe County Jr. with like some of the... the oh, sacrifice. yeah. Mm-hmm. Briscoe was brilliant. Yeah, this, it's Briscoe County Jr. And, you know, for a man who hates the movie Silverado, this had a very Silverado vibe to it as well. Mm-hmm. I just killed the conversation. Very. You, you lost us with that reference. I think is Chuck, uh, Chuck Dixon on Dixon, record. Chuck Dixon is on record as hating Silverado. Oh, right. okay. All right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's right. That's nuts. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you guys. This is one that could have easily kept going. Like I would, I could definitely, you know, like All Star Western kind of style. Read a lot more adventures of this team. Yeah. I'm I'm I just one of the hallmarks of a good one is that you want to see more of it. Mm-hmm. You want to see where the story goes next when it's a good what if or a good else worlds, or you'd buy a story set in that else world. A lot of them end up being very closed off by the time you get to the end of them. But this one, yeah, you could have done a sequel to this. I think Chuck Dixon's always got his eye out for sequels, though, hasn't he? He's he's quite canny that way. I'm now thinking of a blonde Bruce Campbell playing Booster Gold. <laughs> he was hilarious first of all that'd be brilliant too uh and it would fit with the character because booster was really enjoyable in this one like he had this weird quirk when he walked in a room he'd say like hello the store 
um, you know, which was, or he'd say, he said it again later, like, hello, something else, but he would say hello. And then address, oh, hello, the restaurant, like what a strange, weird quirk of talking, but, uh, it was super fun. I, I, of course, I just absolutely love the JLI connection as well, uh, with all the characters throughout. I love Booster's line. I'd follow her through purgatory just for the view. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Booster. <laughs> Uh, I, I had a blast reading all five of these stories. I, I think you guys all picked some really, really great selections. Uh, for those of you guys listening, I, I highly encourage you to check some of these out. These are fantastic. Um, I just wanted to touch upon a few other sort of runners up and, and other recommendations that we'll get from everybody um, to a little bit more recent and kind of like bigger, bigger picture ones that didn't fall into these same categories um, on the Marvel side of the fence. Uh, the, the series that they did a couple of years, well, God, about a decade ago, more than that. Um, 1602 by Neil Gaiman mm. and uh, was it Andy Cooper and yeah. Yeah, Andy Cooper. Um, great thing that kind of repurposes the, the classic silver age Marvel characters in a Shakespearean Elizabethan England. Uh, very, very cool. A lot of fun reveals um, made me feel like an idiot for not realizing that the old lame doctor named Donald was actually Donald Blake. And what would happen when he slams his cane on the ground? <laughs> I, just, I was like, Oh God, why didn't I see that coming for like seven issues? <laughs> um, really, really enjoyed that one. On DC's side, a, a more recent sort of Elseworlds imaginary thing, one that I expected I would hate based on the premise was the Injustice series that started off as web comics as a tie into the video game. Just because I knew the setup was Joker kills Lois Lane and all of Metropolis and Superman goes evil. And I just, I, that left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't want to see a series where Superman is evil. But I started reading the comics, and all credit to Tom Taylor, he made that a really fun, really enjoyable series. Um, I read that weekly for the first two seasons, um, and yeah, I mean it's just it's it's an alternate universe. You just you bite you accept the premise that you're going to see the characters that you love doing really evil and terrible things, and if you're just ready to meet it on that wavelength, man, it was like. It, I, I compared it to like Game of Thrones with the level of every episode he would have like a what the hell just happened moment, either by like killing somebody off that you didn't see coming or some sort of reversal or something like that. So, yeah, if you if you want a more recent um, uh, Elseworlds story that can definitely get bleak and dark, uh, the Injustice series, especially the ones written by Tom Taylor, were really, really good. Um what about you guys? Any other uh, recommendations? Shag, what did you have? What else would you say? Well, I've got a, a little list here, and I'm afraid I'm going to be stealing some from other folks, so I apologize in advance. But uh, I'll rattle off some DC ones that are absolute favorites. Superman and Batman Generations is absolutely wonderful. Mm. Uh, Justice League America, The Nail is another exceptional one. The mm. Golden the Golden Age is probably my favorite, which is, tells the story of the JSA after World War II. Um, of course, Gotham by Gaslight's great. I love Batman Thrill Killer. That's the Dan Brereton one with, um, with with Batgirl quite a bit. That's a great. In fact, Stella and I covered it on an episode. Um, Batman Houdini holds a special place in my heart because my dad's a Houdini collector. So it's the only comic I ever bought for my dad. Um, so and it's a fun story. Batman Holy Terror is wonderful. Uh, and then Batman in Darkest Night, which is the Green Lantern issue. I absolutely love that. And then as far as uh, the Marvel side, you know, I 
I would wholeheartedly endorse almost anything from the second volume of What If, just because I love it. Again, not not claiming it's all great, but I just adore it. I have right at the top of the list because it always gets forgotten is Batman Master of the Future, mm-hmm. which was the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight. And it's that universe drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Mm. <laughs> so artistically, it's amazing. But it's also a really fun adventure story set in that time period. I think it always gets forgotten because of Gotham by Gaslight's stature as a story. Uh, and they stole elements of it for the animated film. Uh, that's why there's a big dirigible fight. Uh, and I just like saying the word dirigible. So that's another reason <laughs> I wanted to mention it. Uh, also, I would recommend Superman Cowl, which uh, is a basically pro- prologue to the King Arthur legend, but with Superman. Uh, it's, with gorgeous, lush artwork. Uh, I would recommend of the annuals of the Elseworld annuals read the Superman, the man of steel one, which is art by Mark bright, which it's just a really interesting take. If you've ever read Superman number 18 from the burn run where the Kryptonians come to earth and kind of take over, it's a play on that, that ends up being really, really cool. Uh, It's probably one of my favorite annuals from that summer. Marvel side, I would, like Shag, any of those, especially the early issues of the Marvel second What If series, uh, because especially the one What If, uh, the the, the Punisher one, was actually really emotional, despite having kind of weak artwork. Uh, And if you want just something that's kind of balls-to-the-wall fun, pre-image stuff what if wolverine became an agent of shield which which has rob liefeld artwork and it's uh it's actually it's actually really good uh, i was shocked that i liked it as much as i did the superman cal one with the was that the one with art by jose luis garcia lopez praise be his name yes yes didn't he do he did a batman one that same year didn't he with batman in the old west it was like a cowboy batman i don't remember the name was that the batman the blue the gray the the i was like i have that one i can't think of the name of it yeah yeah the blue the gray and the bat uh garcia lopez may have been involved but i think i was alan weiss um i think he was the main artist on that oh i thought i thought he may have, he might have, he might have been involved in like layouts or something. But or I think maybe he inked was, it or something. I, yeah, I don't he know. may have inked it. Yeah, yeah. I think that was Elliot S. Magan wrote that. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Top of my head. Yeah. yeah, that was one I was actually going to recommend. Uh, was that one? They even made a, a Kenner Legends of uh, the Batman mm-hmm. <laughs> figure of it. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Um, uh, you know, one thing I'd bring up that we haven't brought up because you know I love the Super Sons Golden Age is great, but. Uh, the amalgam comics. I mean, they're pretty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, there's so. I mean, Super okay. Soldier, and and I mean, some of them are, you know, but Spider Boy and things like that. They're a lot of fun. They're just yeah. Some- yeah. Reread the one, the, the like the Codename Assassins one, and, and and tell me that that isn't one of the worst comics ever. Yeah, but then but you most get of like, them are really good. I was gonna say, then you get like Challengers of the Fantastic though, which yeah. is great, or Doctor Strange Fate, or Iron like Lantern, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, just, the, some yeah. of them are great. Yeah. Some are great. Uh, the one I was uh, almost brought up is another Carrie Bates, his first comic story, although Edmund Hamilton scripted it, The Clash of the Cape and Cow from World's Finest number 153, just because that is the comic that the meme comes from where Batman's pimp slapping Robin. 
So (laughs) (laughs) I had to bring that up because it's this this story he wrote immediately before the one I covered. So (laughs) Uh, I like, obviously, what if Spider-Man and Murray Jane had actually had a daughter and that led into the Mayday Parker Spider-Girl series, which I think is the only what if that got a spin-off series. But we all know that that's not a what if. And the what if is everything that happened post John Burns revamp of Spider-Man. So that would be stupid to suggest that one. (laughs) Pause for applause. Uh, I'm going to second Generations and the Nail, both of which I really enjoy. Uh, I love what if Conan had walked the earth today by Roy Thomas, where Coda basically lives, uh, arrives on earth today and does what he always does. He beats up bad guys and he shags redheads. There's no bad <laughs> Sounds like my college I, years. Yeah, I love, <laughs> hey, you wish you looked like Conan. <laughs> I love what if the Fantastic Four hadn't got the powers, which is basically the challenges of the unknown. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that. What if Spider-Man's Uncle Ben had lived is a fantastic story that you should check mm-hmm. out. The, the one I read just this week, and Ryan, if you thought that this what if Batman was a fascist story was prescient that you just picked. What if Captain America had been revived today Ooh. from What If 44 is really good, hmm. given the light of the world in which we currently live? <laughs> Go and check that out, because it takes the very brave stance initially of putting Captain America on the side of fascism and suppressive freedom. And I'm reading this feeling really uncomfortable, and then it does something that makes it all okay. Is it the same thing that Nick Spencer and Tom Brevoort did with the Secret Empire or whatever the story was? Yes, they revealed Captain America to be an agent of Hydra. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're just um, some of my picks. Uh, yeah, and these are all good. Um, I, I, had, uh, I just thought of one major one that nobody mentioned we should have thought of. Uh, the Tangent Universe. Uh, some great mm. stuff there. In fact, uh, there, was a, there was a great podcast about it, Parallel Lines, by our buds Michael Bradley and uh, Sean Engel. Uh, who's who's sadly not with us anymore. So I just wanted to mention Tangent because it's worth celebrating. Cosign JLA the nail uh, listeners. Mm. If you go back f- uh, four years, uh, Chris and Cindy uh, covered that one on, was it episode 50 of Supermates, Supermates? with you and Rob? Yep. Yeah. And uh, Michael, you and I talked about uh, the golden age on mm-hmm. one of your, one of your shows. It was really fun. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, I forgot um, the Batman vampire trilogy, red rain and, and bloodstorm like that. Those are some of my, Oh, I love those back in the day. Yeah. I'm going to mm-hmm. turn my geek card in right now and say, I've actually never read those. <laughs> See, all right. If we're throwing geek cards down, I will tell you, I've read the first one and didn't really like it and don't understand the popularity because, and I get, it's just me, I suppose, because it's it, at the time was wildly popular. It mm-hmm. was massively popular. Mm-hmm. You know what? I liked them at the time. I have not reread them. I don't know if I would like them today. I don't know. I I, I will not say they hold up because honestly, it's been twenty five years maybe since I read them. But sounds like a crossover. <laughs> there you go. Planting seeds. Um, getting back to the um, uh, the um, the amalgam comics. Foy, this is a. This is a backhanded or half-hearted plug for um, the Tomb of Ideas podcast. They cover Marvel horror books on an April Fool's one. They they made me read some Amalgam comics, and I did the mashup of The Flash and Ghost Rider. Speed Demon. Demon. God, that was one of the worst comics I have ever read. (laughs) That was the thing about that Amalgam is like, like you had like Super Soldier, which was a lot of fun. 
and really mashed those two worlds together. And then you had Speed Demon, and it was just like, okay, so what if what if Image did the flag? <laughs> oh God, it was so bad. It was like yeah, it, like everything about it, concept, execution. Oh. All right, guys, uh, listeners, we have given you a ton of great uh, Elseworlds, imaginary tales, what ifs, and just non-continuity stories to think about. Go read some. They're a whole lot of fun. One more time, I want to thank, in particular, Martin Gray uh, for suggesting this topic um, and all of our patron sponsors, all of our patron donors uh, who, who get in this. These are always you know, fun little topics because it, it might not be something that we generate ourselves, but somebody mentions something that's like, you know what? Well, yeah, this could be a fun one. And, and we've got more in the works because... Uh, because our, our our donors have been very very generous, especially in a year and a time when there's other stuff you could be spending your money on. But we <laughs> we definitely we love you for it. So before we sign off, everybody uh, on the show, do this at the exact same time. Plug what shows you're on now, <laughs> Michael. Where else can our our listeners find you? Uh, just head on over to the fortress of which is the home of the fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, which as Ryan suggested is uh, two thirds Superman, Batman, but I do have views from the long box as well. And a new show that's on the feed. That's kind of a catch all show called views on. Cause uh, I decided branding would be a better idea. I was just like shag would be appreciate the fact that I'm trying to market myself like that. And I um, do, but uh, I have uh, one episode of that out and another coming soon with shag actually, where we talk about Cobra Kai. Cool. Andy Leyland, where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Uh, I do the Palace of Glittering Delights, which is me just waffling on about whatever I'm interested in at any given time. And I do the Overlook Dark Knight with Michael. And that's pretty much it at the minute. Chris? I'm on the network. If you hang around long enough, you'll find me. But no, I do JLU Cast. I do Nightcast with you, uh, Ryan. I do. Uh, uh, that's that's most the most active things I'm doing right now. Superman Movie Minute shall return with me and Rob. Covering Superman three, yes, Superman three. Uh, so yeah, but just uh, I'll 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 be on the network. Just just keep your ears open. When are you doing Superman four? <laughs> I can't get Rob to do it. Shagwis, <laughs> uh, I just want to say how much I appreciate you inviting all of us to be on this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. It's uh, <laughs> been really touching for us. It's a little bit of an inside joke for you people at home. Sorry, that's, that's meta for those of you. <laughs> Uh, obviously the Firewater Podcast Network, but uh, most of my time I spend actually listening to all of you out there, so uh, that's where you'll find me. Uh, Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. If you like this discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. If you like these shows a whole bunch, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. Until next time, thank you for listening.